Welcome to Follow Him, a weekly podcast dedicated to helping individuals and families with their Come Follow Me study. I'm Hank Smith. And I'm John, by the way. We love to learn. We love to laugh. We want to learn and laugh with you. As together, we follow Him. My friends, welcome to another episode of Follow Him, a podcast designed to help individuals and families with their Come Follow Me studies. I'm here with my co-host, John, by the way. We're back, John. Yeah, I'm so excited to be back again. We would love it if you if you like our podcast to go and rate it, review it. Uh, if if you don't like it, go ahead and send that to us, and we'll go ahead and put that we'll put that on there for you eventually or sometime. <laughs> um, we also have a Facebook page now, John. We're getting we're just we're getting mainstream here, and we have an Instagram account. So please uh, go look up, follow him on those social media platforms, and you'll get. Uh, extras and quotes and uh, awesome things from the podcast. Uh, John, we have another expert here with us today. Tell us who is joining us. Oh, we're so happy today to have uh, Dr. Lisa Olson-Tate. And she has a PhD from the University of Houston and is a historian and writer and specialist in women's history at the Church History Department. She is a volume editor and historical reviewer on Saints, that book you all have, and is working on a team to write a history of the Young Women's Organization, which will be published in a couple of years. She has contributed to the Revelations in Context series, which is on your Gospel Library app. You've got to get that. And other church history department projects. Before joining the department in 2013, she taught Doctrine and Covenants at classes at Brigham Young University. She also leads the Mormon Women's History Initiative Team, an independent group that sponsors scholarship and networking in the field. She and her husband, Mike, have three sons and a very special daughter, Kaylee, and two dogs. So we're really, really happy to have you with us, Dr. Tate. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, this is exciting. Dr. Tate uh, comes highly recommended uh, by one of our former guests, uh, Brother Steve Harper, Dr. Steve Harper, who just couldn't tell me enough about Lisa and how much fun she is, too. So you have a lot to live up to. Not only are you brilliant, you're also fun. So It was Steve saying that, so you'll have to gauge what level that of fun right. you think that well, means. Fun means. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. This week, we are uh, looking at sections 23 through 26. So in section 23, it's still April of 1830. The church is not even a month old. It's our little tiny baby church. Um, Joseph is re- receiving instruction here for five men Um and we've we've heard of most of these names before. We have Oliver Cowdery, who we've talked about. Um, Hiram Smith, who we talked about with section, what was that, section 11. Uh, Joseph Smith Sr., the prophet's father. We looked at him in section four. Joseph Knight Sr., as a lot of our guests have said, the Knights are pretty much the second family in the church. And uh, But a new name comes up we've never seen before. We've talked about him before, and this is Samuel Smith. Um, can you tell us, uh, Dr. Tate, can you tell us about Samuel, what we know about him, how he, what his relationship was like with Joseph and, um, how did he felt about the work? 
Samuel Smith is Joseph's younger brother. He's just younger than Joseph. Uh, I think the next son in line in the family. He comes to visit Joseph and Oliver in May of 1829, shortly after their experience with John the Baptist, where they've received the priesthood and they've they've baptized each other. Joseph's history says that they uh, had begun to reason. I think what they mean is talk about the scriptures with a few people and and. Um, kind of start paving the way for introducing this idea of, of the restoration to others. Joseph says that they informed Samuel of what the Lord was about to do for the children of men and reasoned with him out of the Bible and showed him some of the work that they had translated and labored to persuade him concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was now about to be revealed in its fullness. Joseph says that Samuel was not very easily persuaded of these things, but after much inquiry and explanation, retired to the woods in order that by secret and fervent prayer, he might obtain of a merciful God wisdom to enable him to judge for himself. So this younger brother then, this this brother that's just younger than Joseph, he would be about 21 years old. And he isn't going to just accept everything at face value. And so he um, seeks out this experience for himself and receives his own witness. And as a result, he becomes the third person to be baptized in this dispensation. He wow. he receives baptism shortly after that. So um, that's kind of where things are at when the church is organized, Samuel, of course, being part of the Smith family, um, you know, they're going to have a, a really key role to play. I think they all know that. They've been aware of, of Joseph's experiences, at least some of them. And so Samuel is poised to, to play a role here. Um, the Lord tells him here in section 23 in this, in this revelation, though, he says that his calling will be to exhortation, to strengthen the church, which the church uh, is just barely coming into being at this point. Yeah. Um, but thou art not yet called to preach before the world. And that will change. And by early in 1831, Samuel's going to uh, travel to Kirtland, just shortly behind um, Oliver Cowdery, Parley Pratt, you know, the first missionaries that that stop and introduce the gospel in Kirtland, and Samuel follows them shortly thereafter. And for these, especially these first few years of the church's history, Samuel is just a prolific missionary. He walks all over the eastern United States, uh, t- preaching the Book of Mormon, sharing the gospel, and becomes, um, I believe it's he who's instrumental in introducing the Book of Mormon to Brigham Young's family and instrumental in the conversion at Brigham and then Heber C. Kimball and some of these important early converts to the church. So he's going <laughs> to have gonna a say, major role to play. I was going to say, p- placing that Bible with Brigham's, fa- that Book of Mormon with Brigham's family, that had some impact it on the church. It had some implications. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, I think members of the church um, are going to be, you know, uh, somewhat acquainted with Joseph and Hiram. Uh, but I hope that one of our my, one of my hopes in the podcast was that Samuel will will you know become more important uh, to people. Uh, he's going to die about the same time as as Joseph and Hiram. What six weeks after them, or or maybe maybe a little bit longer, or two months after them, right? Yeah. 
I know at least traditionally, um, his death was ascribed to possibly to injuries that he suffered in writing all night and the, right. the stress of of informing um, the community about the death of of his brothers. And so, um, you know, whatever the case was, he he doesn't outlive Joseph and Hiram, and it. So we don't know. You know, he, he his story doesn't continue in in right. the church history after that. Yeah, and that's just yeah. I just I hope. Uh, I, I, I told, um, uh, my daughter's best friend, her name is Holland. And I, as I told this story, she said, he deserves a statue at Carthage <laughs> jail. I want him to have a statue there. So I, I told her that I would, I'd put this on the podcast that those who are in charge of the statues, uh, there needs to be a statue of, of Samuel there at Carthage jail. Um, uh, I was wondering, did he ever marry Samuel? He did. He marries Mary Bailey. They have four kids. Oh, another thing uh, I like in this one is that earlier in section 11, Hiram is told, seek not to declare my word, but to obtain it. And it sounds like they switch gears here in, in verse three. Am I reading that right? Yeah. Thy tongue is loosed, the Lord yeah. says to Hiram. Isn't that interesting where section 11 was so restraining, you know, hold mm -hmm. on, hold on. And now he's saying, your calling is to exhortation, to strengthen the church continually. I love that. So it's like green light, Hiram. Yeah. Hiram's been waiting, waiting, waiting. Yeah. <laughs> Now's time. I also had another question about in verse six, it speaks of Joseph Knight Sr. Well, it, what's interesting here for me is that all, all of these guys receive a message that they are under no condemnation except for Joseph Knight. So it seems that maybe he's dragging his feet a little bit in in jumping yeah. jumping in. Yeah, verse six has always been interesting to me, where it says, you must take up your cross in the which you must pray vocally before the world as well as in secret. I don't know that we have any other sources that would explicitly help us know where this is coming from, but I don't know if we need them. I mean, I think this is an example of how these revelations speak to people in their most intimate and personal thoughts and feelings of their heart. The Lord is showing that He knows their heart. And this expression of take up your cross is interesting, isn't it? Of um, do something that's hard for you. Do something that will be a sacrifice, that will show your commitment. And perhaps uh, Joseph Knight was not particularly comfortable praying and, and speaking publicly at this point in his life. And so the, the revelation um, challenges him to, to do that. And I mean, I think it's interesting how, how revelation often does that. Our patriarchal blessings do that sometimes, or just the promptings of the spirit that we get, that we have to take up our cross. We have to do what's difficult. We have to be willing to sacrifice our fears and our discomfort in order to follow the Lord and to 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 do what He would have us do and grow into what He can have us become. Now, in Joseph Knight's recollection, he mentions, um, and this would be a couple of months later after this revelation is received, he um observes some baptisms, and I think these are the ones we'll talk about here shortly with where Emma is baptized, and it's in a stream that's dammed up on his property in Colesville. 
he says that he he watched as these people went forth and were baptized. It was the first time he had seen anyone be baptized in what he calls the new and everlasting covenant. He said, I had some thoughts to go forward, but I had not read the Book of Mormon and I wanted to examine a little more, I being a restorationer and had not examined as much as I wanted to. So he he wants to really investigate this. But I should have felt better if I had gone forward. But I went home and was baptized in June with my wife and family. So, gosh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe those baptisms were some of these even earlier ones. But um, but this shows Joseph Knight. I mean, he's a full-on supporter of Joseph Smith. We'll talk about this as well, how much material and temporal help he's given him. Um, but he is an independent Yankee kind of man, and he wants to be sure before he moves forward. It's it's a it's just a lovely little um glimpse into his soul and his personality. Well and I also like how you're talking you you said this about Samuel as well that he's gonna go find out for himself. It seems that all of these we've talked about this with Oliver. We've talked about this with Hiram that they weren't just all in at first. It was I I'm gonna have my own revelation. I think Joseph to his credit was Yes, you can. Go talk to God yourself. You don't have to talk to God through me all the time. Go talk to him yourself. You, I really appreciate that about Joseph Smith, is that he's saying, I've had my own first vision experience, but you need to have your own visionary experience, right? The, the, the focus was not on what he had seen, but what on others could see. Uh, if they went to God themselves. And I, I, I think that's extraordinary. I think, too, I was reading a commentary, the Robinson and Garrett uh, commentary, and they mentioned that Joseph Knight was, before this, a universalist and may not have sensed the importance of baptism or something. And maybe that's why in verse 7, as Lisa just talked about, uh, it says, it is your duty to unite with the true church. So this was in... Uh, April of 1830, and as Lisa said, June of 1830, he went ahead and submitted to baptism. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. I just think I I felt a little bit of of envy as I'm reading this, going Oliver again. Boy, how many do you get? How many sections of the Doctrine and Covenants would we each love to have? You know, uh, unless they're too condemnatory or whatever. But right here, these some of these same characters are being talked to again, and it sounds like kind of a Yep, you're doing fine. Yep, you're doing fine. Uh, message at some of those. Maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I kind of like that. Oliver, you're doing great. Uh, Hiram, you're doing great. And a little bit of encouragement, perhaps. Yeah. Well, and uh, this verse 2 and 23, make known thy calling unto the church. I mean, this is building off of the revelation we have in section 21, where um, the Lord tells Oliver that, He's an elder to the church. He's the first preacher of this church. Hmm. So again, the Lord, the Lord is saying, you know, take this calling and and run with it, Oliver. You you're you're good to go. Yeah, hmm. I that I I really just appreciate this. Here's our little tiny church. I, I call it little baby church here in its first month, and you got the Lord going. All right, here we go. Like let's get let's get underway. Let's get started. I pick, I remember me with my little with my little children. It was a lot of encouragement right? A lot of let's get, let's try new things. Let's, let's get going here. Um, and I really like what you said with Joseph Knight, Lisa, do what is difficult. I, I, well, I shouldn't say I like it. 
I feel it. Uh, I feel it because there's a lot of times and I, I like to stay in my comfort zone. I don't know about you two, but I like to stay where I feel very safe. You know, let me, let me teach a gospel doctrine class and I'm good to go, but ask me to administer a program. John, I know you served as Bishop, ask me to do something like that. And I think the Lord is going to have to say, uh, you're going to have to do some difficult things here, right? Like, and, Take up your and, cross. Yeah. yeah and, and unite yourself with the true mm-hmm. church. And I think sometimes maybe, uh, you know, I'm definitely a member of the church, but I don't know if I've fully united unless I'm willing to do those difficult things that come with, you mm-hmm. know, new callings and, and new experiences. Um, I remember, John, when you were called as bishop, you were pretty terrified right? But that was part of uniting with the church, I think, is accepting that calling. Yeah, that, that's a good word for it. I, I was, t- I feel like I, I had it in me and all that sort of thing. And so I, I appreciate reading about these and, and the Lord's not telling him, I'm going to remove your trials and make this easy. Yeah. As, as Lisa said, it's more like, take up your cross. Here we go. Wow. Here we go. Uh, in July of 1830, Joseph Nama back in Har- in Harmony, Pennsylvania, after a really rough experience towards the end of June. They were in Colesville, and um, on the 26th of June, they had dammed a stream, I think it's on Joseph Knight's property, where they were going to perform some baptisms. And the opposition in the area had become so intense that some people came and broke up that dam and and you know we're not they were not able to do the baptisms that day so they had to dam it again and then uh, Emma and a few others are baptized on the 28th of June which i believe was a monday and as they were preparing to have a meeting where Emma would be confirmed along with the others who were baptized at that time a constable comes and arrests Joseph for being a disorderly person by preaching the Book of Mormon. So it's interesting that, you know, these this small little flock of, of the church is just minding their own business, doing, you know, doing what they think they, they need to do. And somehow other people come in and disrupt it. And yet it's Joseph Smith who's the disorderly yeah, you're, person. You're the right? disorderly person. Yeah. But so he's hauled <laughs> off. He's taken to court. It's a all day and all night ordeal. He's acquitted. And then as soon as he's let go, another constable from another county comes and arrests him, and he's all hauled off to court again. And meanwhile, Emma has taken refuge at the home of her sister, which is not too far off, and is leading some of the members of the church there in prayer and supplication on behalf of Joseph. And the upshot of all of this is that they're not able to hold that that confirmation meeting at the time. And so Joseph and Emma return back to Harmony, Pennsylvania, where their farm is. And then these revelations, 24, section 24, 25, 26, are going to come um, in, you know, shortly after, after they get back to, to Harmony. Okay. So it's been a rough go. Let's put it that way. The the very beginnings are not, it's not smooth sailing here uh, right. for these, these little branches. The Lord does say in verse three, 
you've got basically three little branches of the church, right? You've got Colesville, which is down by Harmony. You've mm-hmm. got Fayette, which is where the Whitmers are. Whitmers and are. Manchester, where the Smith Farm is. Right. right. So you've got your three tiny little branches of the church, and they're mm-hmm. already um, receiving some pretty intense persecution, which doesn't make a lot of sense for a tiny little church, right? To all of a sudden people up in arms uh, against it, uh, which to me tells us about the, the work of the adversary. He's going to crush this thing, going to attempt to crush it before it's before it even can grow some legs. Nip it in the bud. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think when when we have that same feeling like this doesn't make sense, it's like yeah, then there must it, this must really be something, right? Uh, I mean that I feel like you do. Uh, here's a testimony of it. Why would it be opposed if if somebody uh, on their own property makes a little dam of a river to have a baptism? Why would that bother you? Apparently, the adversary knew this is the beginning of something big. It's kind of the same question that Joseph will later write in his history, right, when he recounts the story of his first vision. And, you know, it's caused me a lot of reflection why this little obscure boy that I was would call forth such opposition from these important people. And why did they even take notice of me? And that's going to be the story all the way along. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one point in his history, and we didn't cover this in the history, but I'm glad you brought this up. Lisa, he says, it seems as though, this is Joseph Smith history, verse 20, it seems as though the adversary was aware at a very early period (laughs) of my life that I was destined to prove a disturber and an annoyer of his kingdom. Why would the powers of darkness combine against me? Why the opposition and persecution that arose against me almost in my infancy? That could be said about the church as well, right? That even in its infancy, it is receiving severe opposition and persecution. And what'd you say, John? Just a bunch, uh, just a couple of believers getting together, you know, to have a little baptism. Yeah. On our own property. Um, I love, I've always loved that line. I I think Sherry Dew even gave a talk about being annoyers and disturbers. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of thing really got the attention of the adversary, apparently, even though it's, it, to us, it doesn't make sense. You're looking at like, why would you care? Yeah. Um, some of the teenagers listening would, would probably agree that they have little brothers and sisters that are disturbers <laughs> and annoyers. <laughs> uh, what are some of the things that we, some of the things that are remarkable, some of the things that you, you put red pencil under or whatever in 24 and 26? Uh, I mean, for me, one of them is, is verse two and Joseph's willingness to have this out there. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it, how the Lord starts out by saying, I've lifted thee up out of thine afflictions, which is probably at least a a direct reference to this recent experience. But then in the very next verse, nevertheless, thou art not excusable in thy transgressions. (laughs) Go thy way and sin no more. Again, I mean, this is the Lord speaking to Joseph in a very personal way. Presumably, Joseph knew what those were um, at the time. Um. And that's the, I mean, I think that's the Lord's way of, of dealing with us. He'll lift us up out of our afflictions and he'll reprove us betimes with sharpness when yeah. that's what we need to hear. Mm. This, this also shows Joseph's sincerity. It's like, well, the Lord said it, it's going in the book. Uh, <laughs> if it was me, I'd, yeah. I'd say, let's start at can, verse three. Can, uh, can we edit that part? <laughs> Do we that have was to just put that for me. In? That was meant just for me, not for everybody else. <laughs> everybody to read about my transgressions. But he's sincere. 
this this was the Lord speaking. It goes in the Revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things about the Revelations, isn't it? There's um, like the the voice of these Revelations. Joseph presumably is literally physically speaking these words, and someone is writing them down. Yeah. But Joseph himself is not present in the Revelations as a narrator, and so. As Richard Bushman has said, you know, when rebukes are handed out, he's as just as likely as anyone to receive one along with mm. everybody else. It <laughs> it is really interesting. Yeah, and it's I I look at verse 8. How would you like to have verse 8 said to you? Uh be patient in afflictions for thou shalt have many. <laughs> yeah. It's probably feeling like I've already had many. Thank you very yeah, much. Could, right. could yeah. we could we change that to thou shalt have a few? Yeah, uh, or you have had al- you have had many already. <laughs> so again, it's July. Joseph Smith is a farmer. It's a farming economy, and in in verse three, the Lord tells him, "After thou hast sowed thy fields." Now, hmm. I'm not an expert on 19th century farming practices, but July seems a little late to a be sowing your fields, <laughs> and it's because he's been building up the church. It's because he's been fulfilling his calling and, and, and doing the, the work of the church and the work of the Lord that he's literally not been able to come to get back to his farm and sow his fields. And in verse 3, the Lord tells him to go to these churches, these, as we would say now, branches of the church, and they shall support thee, um, and tells him to continue in his calling continuing calling upon God in my name and writing the things which shall be given thee by the comforter and expounding all scriptures unto the church. One thing we ought to make notice of is that in June of 1830, amidst everything else that's going on, Joseph receives the revelation that we have as chapter one of the book of Moses. So he's actually launching into this Joseph Smith translation process at the same time that all this other stuff is going on. And so the the Lord's telling him, keep going, writing the things which shall be given thee by the comforter, expounding all scriptures unto the church. One thing to know about, especially these early revelations in the Doctrine of Covenants, is that when they say scriptures, they mean the Bible for the most part. In in this culture, the scriptures were the Bible. Um, And so I don't know, we don't know, like we have no records about the book of Moses and its reception. We don't know anything about how Joseph came up with the idea or the commission to to study the Bible and do the translation of it that becomes the JST. But this verse may, may be a reference to that in some way. But he tells him, you shall devote all thy service in Zion, and in this thou shalt have strength. And then verse 9 In temporal labors, thou shalt not have strength, for this is not thy calling. So the Lord is setting out here the circumstances and expectations that Joseph can have in terms of his life. He isn't going to get rich. The church is to support him. Um, You know, the Smith family was a hardworking, independent family. They, They weren't the type of people to go asking for handouts and asking for other people to support them. And so that's going to be maybe uh, something that's that's going to be difficult for Joseph and certainly Emma, as we'll talk about here in yeah. a minute. Um, it, 
and to say in temporal labors, thou shalt not have strength. I mean, I've heard some people kind of joke about this. It's like, you know, Joseph's no good at business or whatever. I don't think that's what it's saying here. It's just saying your calling is to the church. Your calling is to do the work of God. And that is not where you're going to have your time and your energy and your greatest ability to to put your efforts into, not in the in the temporal labors. I so, remember I remember John used to say this as bishop. He would say, My time is not my own. And yeah. I think I think Joseph could probably say that from from April of eighteen thirty and even before that onward, my time is not my own. I cannot go sow my fields. I cannot go and 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 make an income because do you remember President Hinckley said this? The life of the president of the church belongs to the church. I remember him saying that. It belongs to the church. And it's almost as if you're getting that from the Lord, that um, you're not going to be a farmer really a lot anymore, brother. You, you're, <laughs> you're going to all thy service. All seems like a pretty high percentage word, right? All thy <laughs> service goes to Zion. And that's where you're going to have your strength, your energy. I like that you said that. That's where you're going to be effective. Temporal labors, you're going to have to rely on others. Um, and I, I'm really glad that we have Lisa here today because I'm trying to think, what does your, what does your spouse think when you are told that by the Lord? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what? You're, you're, we're going to have to rely on others all of our lives? And how does that, uh, that make Emma feel? I, I love that she gets... Uh, some instruction from the Lord coming up here because I just wondered how that would make her feel. No, you're not going to be any good at that. Uh, well, I'm <laughs> overstating it, but that's not you. That's not where your focus is. Well, this is this is where I, I've always felt that section 24 and 25 go together hmm. because section 24 sets up the circumstances that the revelation to Emma is going to address. And so, you know, we can talk about that more in a minute. But if you think about this already, I mean, again, going back to Joseph Knight and his recollections, he he talks about how several times when Joseph was translating the Book of Mormon, uh, Joseph Knight came to visit him or, or the Smiths went to visit him. But anyway, Joseph Knight came to see that Joseph was in need or in want, as he would say, and he provides... Um, shoes, $3, paper, a barrel of mackerel, some taters, as he says, potatoes. <laughs> you know, I mean, like he's, Joseph literally has gotten already through the translation of the Book of Mormon um, because of the support of Joseph Knight. And, mm. and that has been a, a demonstration of this dynamic that this revelation is talking about. The church is going to support the He's he's going to have to to learn to accept that and and the church themselves, as it says, if they receive thee not, I will send upon them a cursing instead of a blessing. So the church is going to have to understand that this is one of their responsibilities. If they want what the prophet can give them, they're going to have to make sure he can eat yeah. and that he can be supported in in being able to fulfill his calling. As I read section twenty four, it reminded me a lot of Matthew chapter ten. When the Savior calls his apostles, he's saying the workman in that in that chapter, he says the workman is worthy of his meat. And uh, what you get from Matthew 10 that I still get the feeling from section 24 is you can have the expectation that I and the church will care for you. 
when you give your entire, all your service to this, to, to Zion, you can have the expectation that you will be taken care of, not just by miracles, but by members of the church, right? And by me. Yeah. Uh, and I think I, you know, we're learning, uh, this is the very beginnings of the restoration, but we're learning about uh, a little bit about our future general authorities that they're, this is the same idea that you give full-time service. All your time is devoted here. Uh, and you can have the expectation that the church and the Lord will take care of you. And that's that's the way it's going to work. Yeah. And Hank, you were, uh, you know, remarking about my time as a bishop. And I was just thinking, well, compared to what some people do, uh, you, you, when, when do you get released if you're in the quorum of the 12? Right. And uh, Uh, I can tell you in my job, I have opportunity to work with some of our our leading brethren, and they truly do consecrate their lives. Mm. It's been amazing to me um, as I've interacted with with some of them to see the way that their lives do totally belong to the Lord and to the church. I had a private conversation with one of them once, and he said, he said, you know, the other day I looked around the table. This was years ago. He said, I looked around the table and there were a couple of wheelchairs, a couple of oxygen tanks. And he thought, well, at least I know my future uh, because (laughs) (laughs) I will end up right there, right? Just handing Mm. my entire life over to the church. And, you know, in my watching President Hinckley going from Mm -hmm. member Mr. Vitality, and then by the end, he was just and the same thing with President Monson. He had he was wiggling his ears, right? And then by the end, you remember he couldn't couldn't stand up for the whole talk. And you just watch them. What Joseph Smith said: waste and wear out their lives in in this service. So Section Twenty Four has become just over this, you know, just in the this discussion is really really become special to me because we've watched this play out in the lives of our leaders. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. We kind of see a pattern of uh, of service for those who are called with those kinds of, of callings that it's inspiring because you think of what would motivate somebody to do that unless they had a deep, uh, abiding, real testimony, yeah. uh, you know, to give your whole life to that until the day you die. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and in Joseph's case, you know, not only are you you know, you're never going to get rich. You're mm-hmm. you're going to have to rely on others to support you. And by the way, people are going to throw you in jail, and you're going to have all <laughs> these afflictions, and it's going to be really hard. Yeah. So, I mean, you can only guess. You know, in July of 1830, Joseph's what 24 years old. Like, I don't know how someone in their mid 20s reads this, but <laughs> he certainly lives it out for the next yeah. 14 years. Yeah. I do want to mention one thing from DNC 24 really quick. And that is, there's a reference, I think, to Jacob 5 in verse 19. For thou art called to prune my vineyard with a mighty pruning, yea, even this last time, um, and do as you have ordained. Uh, And if you go to Jacob 5, there's a great moment where in Jacob 5, where it looks like the vineyard is done. They're going to burn the whole thing. uh, All the fruit is bad. And the Lord says, um, let's try one more thing, right? It's, 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 one, it's like Steve Harper said, John, this is a great movie, right? Where we got to make a, the, the hero's got to make a choice. Let's try one more thing. And so 
he says, call the servants. In Jacob chapter 5, verse um, 61, call the servants. And it says in verse 70 that the Lord called his servants and they were few, right? I wanted it to be like, they were amazing. They were awesome. They were few, but they go and work. And he calls it in uh, Jacob chapter 5, verse 71, this last time that I will nourish my vineyard. And then you see that in Doctrine and Covenants 24, 19, a mighty pruning, yea, even for the last time. Uh, and we see in Jacob 5 how the rest works out, that these few servants of the Lord, and especially in July of 1830, right? these few servants of the Lord turn the entire vineyard around uh, and it starts to produce precious fruit. Um, and I, I, I like that little connection there because I can see that the Lord is saying, this is the beginning of this last time, but it really is going to work. This tiny little church, they've got to be thinking us, what are we going to do, <laughs> right? Uh, these three little towns in of the church right now, what are we going to do? And the Lord's kind of can see this is going to change the world. That that's a good that footnote is right there. It's footnote nineteen a to Jacob nineteen a to Jacob five. So I hope people will will mark that and go there. One of the things when I teach Jacob five, I love to have my students count how many times uh, the Lord says things like, "What more could I have done for my vineyard?" or "It grieveth me that I should lose this tree." And, and just to get the sense, trees here are people. They are sons and daughters of God, and it changes the pain that you feel that the master of the vineyard has when these are people. And those that phrase in verse 19, I'm going to prune my vineyard. Pruning is not the same as I'm going to trim it and make it look a little nicer. Pruning is I'm going to take off the bad vines and keep the good ones. <laughs> it's a, pruning right. can be a painful a painful process. I, I'm glad you brought the. That was very agrarian, Hank. That was yeah, it's, what you just brought up there. We're yeah. learning these bigger words that our experts <laughs> use. We had to warn. We had to warn Dr. Tate. Try not to use multisyllable words on Jonathan. <laughs> Don't Especially use your PhD John. language. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, on. he even he even calls it a mighty pruning. And I would just point yeah. out, and, and you guys would be better prepared to speak to this than I am, but. I think we should remember too, I don't know how familiar these very earliest saints are with the Book of Mormon at this period. Yeah. But the language of vineyard and pruning, mm -hmm. that's biblical language. Yeah. And and it's so important to understand and recognize how much Joseph and the early saints understand that what they are doing in terms of the Bible. They understand that they are they are living the Bible. They're 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 living out what's in the Bible, and there's another example of that here in section 24, um, in verse 14. I mean, the the Lord has talked about um, requiring not miracles, you know, casting out devils, healing the sick, and so forth, and then He says that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he goes on to talk about leaving a cursing instead of a blessing and so forth. If we look at those verses carefully, this is New Testament language. Yeah, this is the same time. kind of instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples. And so, again, we have this sense that, that they're understanding this restoration. They're understanding what they're doing through the lens of the Bible, the scriptures, yeah. that they're fulfilling that. And so, and, and I think, you know, in Jacob and, and, 
you know, we could talk about this for a long time, but in Jacob, he's also drawing on imagery and ideas about the world as the Lord's vineyard that comes from the prophets of the Old Testament. So we're really putting all the dispensations together here in this kind of language. You could go to like Isaiah 5 or 2 Nephi 15. It's like Isaiah's only parable. I had a vineyard in a very fruitful hill and I did everything and it brought forth uh, what does Terry Ball call it? He uses the Hebrew like Be'roshim, and it it doesn't mean wild grapes. It means worthless, stinking things. <laughs> it's it's funny. Uh, I I did everything I could. Uh, what more could I have done? And boy, that ties beautifully to that. I'm glad you said that, Lisa, because maybe they're going, "Hey, this sounds like Isaiah. We got to go, yeah, prove the vineyard." Yeah, yeah. And yeah, Matthew I, chapter ten. I mean, there's take no script neither stay two coats. This is all Matthew chapter 10 language. Right. And it made me think, are there a lot of poisonous snakes in the frontier or something? (laughs) Or is he saying that because that's very much biblical language? And you'll notice that string of footnotes there from the New Testament Gospels about instructions given to the 12. If you read uh, Wilford Woodruff's uh, missionary journal about wading through the swampy streams in the southern United States. I think there probably were some snakes involved there as well. But yeah, it's a real key to engaging with the Doctrine and Covenants to recognize how much these revelations are drawing on share language with the Bible and how powerful that would have been for Joseph and the early saints for them it's the lens that they're that they're looking at this through and 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 that they're interpreting their their experiences through. I think it's really important to understand that. And it's kind of easy for us to miss it today because our culture is not as biblically literate as theirs was. And in the church, we know the Book of Mormon really well now, probably more than we know the Bible. But it's really important. I think it's a key for understanding the Doctrine and Covenants. If you're using old-fashioned paper scriptures, just look at the columns of footnotes and how many of are biblical on page, you know, 43 there about these instructions. Thank you for saying that, Lisa. Yeah, and when uh, we'll get to this later, but when they leave for Ohio, they're going to relate it to the exodus of the children of Israel, right? That's right. Yep. Leaving and and the miracle yep. where the ice parts, right? We'll talk about this later, but the uh, endowment right, of power. Lisa, these are yep. biblical people. Yep. Yeah. Um, let's go to section 26, and then we'll come back and we'll spend the rest of our time uh, talking about Emma. In section 26, um, the Lord's speaking to Oliver and John, and we're tying it into section 24 just because the heading does as well. And the Lord says this, I say unto you that, uh, that you shall let your time be devoted to the studying of the scriptures and to preaching and to confirming the church at Colesville, that's down in Pennsylvania by Harmony, and performing your labors on the land such as required until after you shall go west to hold the next conference. And then it shall be made known what ye shall do. And all these things shall be done by common consent in the church, by much prayer and faith for all things ye shall receive by faith. Amen. So we have a tiny little section here in section 26. Um, doesn't tell them to do much more than you would expect. Um, but then he adds this. All things shall be done by common consent in the church. Do either of you have any thoughts on what what that what that means uh, for the church moving forward? 
Yeah, this principle of common consent in the church is is very interesting that it's here from the very beginning. Um, there's actually a whole context for this in American Christianity at the time, where in some churches they've established this principle that this is one of the uh, this is one of the ways of governing a church or of of legitimating the decisions and the actions of a church is by what's called common consent, and it goes along with um, you know the early American experience, right? The uh, I'm going to use the a PhD word here, the democratization of religion in the United States, where common people are becoming more involved, are having more opportunity to lead, to preach, to to influence the direction of of religion at the time. And so Joseph would have understood this concept of common consent in that larger context mm-hmm. of religion of the day. And I'll just add here, if you're interested in in knowing more about this, the Joseph Smith Papers podcast that has just been released on the restoration of the priesthood has an excellent discussion about this idea of common consent and, and where it came from in, in early America. And the whole podcast is excellent, so I'm going to just put in a, a pitch for that there. I mean, basically, the idea is that the members of the church can vote, can signify their support of what's done in the church. That's the idea of common consent. And this is totally different from their uh, their European heritage, right? Where they were yeah, told- especially from the older what we would call high church tradition that's very much dependent on ordained ministers and you know educated clergy and so forth. Yeah. As I say, there is a context for it in early in the early United States where. This, this idea of common consent wasn't original to Joseph Smith and to the church, mm. but it definitely aligns them with that um, more democratic streak of Christianity that's taking hold in the United States at the time. Now, I can tell you that over time, there have been various claims made about this common consent that it, for example, um, one of the the women that I do a lot of study on likes to, and she's writing in the early 20th century, and she likes to claim that this means that women could vote in the church from the very beginning, and that 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 the Joseph Smith was the first to give women the right to vote in that sense. And it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. It seems at first that at most of the conferences and places where common consent would have been employed, it, it applied to official members of the church, which at first were men who held the priesthood. But by the time you get to Nauvoo, women are voting, offering a sustaining vote in in conferences and and so forth. And so certainly by the the Nauvoo period into the the middle of the 19th century, this does give women at least a a, a vote or a a it does give women the opportunity to make their support known and to to vote on church matters in some capacity. Wow. Wow, that's that's absolutely fascinating. And we can see that this is still important to us. Uh, yeah. You know, at, at General Conference, we're still saying all in favor, right? In our wards, we're still doing yeah. the all in favor. And sometimes those of us who are sitting there going, what do you think I'm going to say? Of course, I'm going to support the steak basketball coach, right? Like, I'm good. (laughs) I'm happy to, you know, but we still, it seems like we still, this is still important to us, this common consent that everybody gets, gets to say. And I think that's 
evolved over time. It's it's been understood and taken different forms over the time. If you if you go back into the 19th century records, you will find it, examples of people voting against of of there being um, of it being more of a, a vote uh, than than the way that we think about it now. I think we've come to think about it now more in a personal sense of 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 our covenants to support you know the lord and support the church and its leaders and so the question as we raise our hands in common consent now is you know will i support this per- it's it's more of a personal commitment right than being an absolute vote but it is still a should we call it a pressure relief mechanism within the church where there is the opportunity to to let it be known if if you know something that maybe the bishop doesn't know or you or you have concerns there is this mechanism for for making that known I really like this I I like to compare it to when Paul says that the church is a body and that we the body needs every piece and the head doesn't say to the hand we don't need you and the hand doesn't say to the feet we don't need you and i often like to say in that paradigm in that way the head can receive information from the rest of the body right if the hand is hurting it sends that information up to the head and says hey i'm really hurting here so one of the ways that i think the head of the church according to this way of thinking can receive revelation is from the body of the church, can receive that information up from the body of the church and that you matter, right? You matter in this organization. We need you. Um, I, I just, I really like that idea. I was kind of, I going back to the sustaining, I, I, I was a little bit of a stickler when I was bishop for the, for the wording that doing this isn't sustaining. Doing this is signifying that you will sustain future tense throughout their calling uh, type of a thing. And I wanted to make sure people knew that that's not sustaining somebody. That's just saying that you're making this covenant of common consent that you will sustain them. Even if you know other people who could be better at that calling, you don't know what the Lord had in mind. But you will signify it by the raise of the hand. I, I liked the language, and I liked that it was a future commitment. Please join us for part two of this podcast.